Today on the podcast, we have Murray Tim. He's got a ridiculous number of NASCAR Cup Series championships and race wins, all while working for Hendrick Motorsports over the last 26 years. To be exact, he's been there for the last 13 NASCAR Cup Series championships and 231 Cup Series race wins. He's built cars for the likes of Dale Earnhardt Jr., Kyle Busch, and Chase Elliott. He's got a huge amount of time spent in the wind tunnel, and he was, in the early 2000s, the front tire changer for Terry Labonte. Murray has received the prestigious Papa Joe Hendrick Award of Excellence, voted on by all 600 employees of Hendrick Motorsports and only given to one each year. He's a passionate racer, and he's a true professional. Enjoy. I know, uh, so Dale Jr. used to... um Used to work for us, obviously. Yeah, right. right. He was a really quiet guy. Um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to say he was a snob, but he was kind of, you know, just not very talkative and sure. kind of kept to himself and people that worked there. And then once he got married and had kids, whole new guy. Really? Started his podcast. Totally different guy now. Yeah, I mean, that's it, it just, it happens, right? You end up, you have more conversations with some, um, you know, intention and you get better at it. Yeah, he's like a super good speaker now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he that was always the way, like watching, and he was never really good in front of the camera or anything. And No, even in the shop when he came in, he was kind of like, he would pick his five guys he would go talk to, right. and he wouldn't talk to anybody else. Do you think it was just kind of his position, just being, you know, growing up kind of probably being a little bit shy and not really, you know, you know what I mean? Just a very unique position. M- maturity. Yeah. I think he just like he's so much more mature. Like when he worked for us, they he they partied all the time. Okay. I mean, he took his job serious, right? Like racing, but um, but once he started the podcast, he just uh, he just looks like the, the way he speaks, and you can tell he's just a lot more mature. You talk his wife and having kids and stuff. He's just grown up a lot. It's kind of cool. It's cool to see. Yeah. Well, I, I've got a two month old, so having kids will make you mature overnight. So you're gonna mature more. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, gave me the mustache. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's good. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for driving all this way just for this podcast. (laughs) That's good. It's exciting. Yeah. Anyone who's a racer, I'm always curious as to, you know, their family history in racing and and what was their first exposure to racing or motorsports or whatever it was. What made you bite the hook? Yeah. So, uh... At 16, um, well, my dad had worked in an engine shop his whole life and uh, adult life. Um, he went into business with four other guys, had a, a shop in Kitchener called Four Way Automotive. Um, and then the partners kind of split up. They all went different directions. And my dad wanted to continue in the business. So he started a new business in Waterloo called uh, New Trend and had seven or eight employees, had a full engine shop, full parts department, um, and managed to work all through Kitchener-Waterloo, Cambridge, Guelph area. And uh, I started going there at nights after school, weekends and stuff, working, cleaning machines. Um, he taught me how to, you know, machine parts and stuff like that and then got into build motors. And uh, when I was uh, 15 or 16, uh, one of his customers uh, that he was building a motor for asked me if I ever wanted to come to the racetrack and help him. So I went to his house during the week. And right then I was like, this is me. I, I love this. And uh, he was just working. On, what, what did he have? He had a hobby car. Okay. Yeah, in a single car garage. Yeah. 
uh, at his house. So I went over there and we started just meddling with it. And I went to the track with him a couple of times and the, the, the hobby club toured a lot. Right. So they went to Michigan. So I went to Michigan with them. And the more I was around them, the more people I met. And it's, you know, it's addicting uh, just meeting the people and the racing side of it. And I really liked it. So when I was uh, this, I watched some of your some of your shows and that and oh, good. The Mark Dilly one, like, that's me. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Came out of the same cookie cutter. Yeah. So I quit school in the 10th grade, halfway through the 10th grade, um, just so I could go work full-time for my dad. And uh, I loved working for my dad. It was great. He had he had some really good employees, but they taught me so much about building motors and machining parts. And um, so I quit school, and, and I kind of did the racing side of it. And what what how did your dad feel about that? Was he Was he thrilled? Was he... You know, just well, it's your own decision. How, did he want you to finish school? He no, he he didn't really care. He the only thing he cared about. He said you have to come to work every day, right. and uh, he said you're not going to goof off. You know, so I quit school. I borrowed some money from one of my uncles. I bought a I bought a hobby car, and I worked all day at my dad's five days a week. Okay, and uh, so I still started building hobby motors, late model motors and stuff. And race motors are hard to make money on. Mm. So my dad kind of backed away from some of the racing stuff and kind of let me have it. Okay. So I would come in. I, I was kind of a crappy employee. I'd, I'd come in at like 9 o'clock in the morning where they'd start at 7, but then I'd work till 9 o'clock at night, right. and they were all gone. But I really enjoyed the racing side of it, building motors and stuff, and uh, met a lot of you know our customers. Um, and I didn't do it all by myself, obviously. My dad did a lot of machining, but I assembled all the race motors, and um, I really liked it. We had met a lot of people, and, and of course, I was racing at the same time. So how, you, uh, you had helped this guy with his hobby car, and you said, okay— I assumed you started racing hobby cars. I did. Yeah. Yep. And you're like, okay, that's the way to go. Yeah. So I, so because he was in the hobby club, I met a lot of their guys and it was an economical class to be in at the time, right. Compared to late models, which obviously everybody would, would like to go there, but, um, I had to just kind of go up the ladder. So I started in a hobby car and, uh, in that class you can, I'm a creative person, right? So I kind of like, you can build a lot of the parts almost, you can pretty much build the whole entire car by yourself. Right. If you can figure out how to, you know, make all the parts. So uh, it was fun. Um, I built my own car. I don't know how many. I probably built five or six. Um, and uh, you can just be creative and doesn't not, not spend a lot of money. Of course, I could build our own motors, so I could, I could do it really cheap, right, just because I could do it all by myself in our shop. And then I got to a point where um, our motors were really fast. And like I said, I didn't do it by myself. My dad taught me a lot, and he, he had all these cool ideas. So we had, like, some stupid power. Okay. And then we couldn't keep them in our car because everybody wanted to buy them, right? Because we built motors for our customers, and we are racing our customers. And, of course, I had the best motor all the time. So right. They would buy my motor, so I have to build another one. So every couple of weeks, I'd have to build another motor. And uh, so it was kind of cool. It was fun. It probably worked out for business. It helped him. Yeah, yeah. He loved it. It was cool. But, it, like, all of our customers are awesome. Great people. My dad loved it, too. He was eating it up. Right. It was a lot of fun. So that's kind of how I got started in racing. And were you, you know, super competitive? Were you pretty quick right away? How did you, like, you, you were certainly hooked, but was there aspirations to, you know, climb the ladder or whatever that ladder looked like in your mind? Yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> when I started, uh, I just, it was, it was the learning curve, right? Just like everybody has to go through. Um, but no, as soon as you start, it's addicting. And, uh, of course I wanted to win. It took me a few years and then, then we started winning races and it was a lot of fun. So, okay. Now jump to, or, or fill in the blank for me, m moving down to North Carolina. Yep. How did that happen? And who did you go with? 
okay, some more funny stories. And it was, it, it, it took years and I didn't, that wasn't my goal. Like I didn't really, I didn't have a plan in life where I was going to go with it. Um, I just raced and, uh, my, uh, so I'm, I'm married. I married, uh, Wendy Connington from Guelph, Ontario. I met her. She was actually in the grandstand. Um, and her and her girlfriends would bet how many times I would spin out in a race. Oh no. <laughs> Eventually, uh, I met her, um, at a racetrack and then, and she's, uh, got two other sisters and they're married racers. So once, once you realize how big the racing family is, it's huge, right? Everybody knows everybody. So mm-hmm. it was kind of cool. Um, Marty's or sorry, let me back up. Wendy's, um, middle sister, Nancy married Marty Gaunt. Okay. Marty Gaunt, um, at the time worked for Canadian tire in Barrie and, uh, me and Marty were friends just through the family and through racing. And we decided to take a trip to Charlotte to go watch uh, the Coca-Cola 600. And when we got down there, uh, we met Peter Gibbons. He was staying at the same hotel that we were staying at. He was Canadian, so, you know, we all had a lot in common. And he needed some help. And he said, hey, if, you know, if you guys aren't doing anything, I'll get you guys passes and you guys can come and help me. So we said, okay. And what was he running? He was running uh, the NASCAR Sportsman Series, which is kind of old, retired cup cars um they created that class and it ended up dissolving just because a lot of guys got hurt it was it was kind of the cars were really fast but not really safe you know so so we went and helped him that weekend well we didn't know what his um racing program was like so when he said he was going to get us passes we went to like the local grocery store and went down the soda aisle and he found he had his his pass for the weekend and, and matched it up with the colors on the boxes and we like made our own passes because oh he, he didn't want to buy them right yeah. so yeah so he gave he we're sitting there making passes <laughs> gluing them together in the hotel room so we could get in and then uh one of us had to hide in the trunk of his car yeah. and uh so that was once we got that uh in our blood like that how big the sport is down there mm. then we were addicted to that right that was the next step we needed we needed to get back here so we went we came home and uh one guy that I grew up with helped me in racing for a long time. His name is Tony Cuesta. He lived down the street from me. But um, we're like, hey, we need we need to go make this trip. We need to go we need to go down south. I want to get a job. And he's like, you're crazy. So we went about a week later. We went back and we were in Charlotte. Watched uh, watched another race. We went bunch of shops and the All American 400 was going to run that weekend too. So we went over to Nashville and watched the All American 400 and then went home. And then it got quiet. We didn't really. I didn't really have a plan. I, I didn't really get a job. I didn't talk to anybody that had gave me any hope, right? So we just came home. But you were keen, like, I want to go. I had the itch. Be a part of racing. Be. After I saw what was going on down there, that is a whole different life, right? It's it's 100% racing. Like, up here, racing, people that race take it really serious. But it's on a really small level, right? Yeah. Um, where down there, people do it every day I don't I don't want to go to a shop and work five days a week and a race on a weekend I want to do it every single day so uh, we came home and we got a phone call from Peter Gibbons he said I'm gonna run some more races if you guys want to help me so me and Marty said yeah for sure we so we signed up and started driving to Stovall Ontario um, on weekends and then Peter um, hired us basically full-time so um, so so he his shop was in Stouffville. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And and he, what was he running out of that shop? Cascar. Eventually. So at the time uh, he had some he had two or three of the the NASCAR sportsman cars. Then he bought an ARC car. Okay. Eventually getting a couple more ARC cars, um, and then got turned on to the Cascar program also at, out of the same shop. So we had a lot of stuff going on, yeah. and. 
decided to build a shop in Morrisville, North Carolina at the same time. Okay. So once I started working for Peter full time, we would go down to Charlotte or Mooresville um, for a week at a time, sometimes a month at a time, and we'd help build the shop. So he had paid a company to put the steel building up, but then he wanted to build an engine room, um, some apartments upstairs, offices, all that stuff. So there was a few of us that stayed down there all the time, and uh, basically it took us a year to build it. We lived in a motorhome in the parking lot and then uh, built the shop. How old were you at this time? I was probably 24 when I started helping Peter, yeah. And that was the dream? It was cool. It was a little rocky, yeah. but uh, I tell a lot of people – the path that I, it took me to get where I got to, it, I wouldn't change it because you. I think you learn so much more if you do it the hard way rather than somebody give it to you, right? So, so I, I'm glad that I took the path that I took and learned a ton of stuff on the way, right? So, uh, so I worked for Peter for a couple of years, and uh, he moved. Did he move full time down to Mooresville? As far as the shop goes, at that point, no. Okay. We were still back and forth a lot. Um, he still he started doing the the cast car program, so he he'd have to come back here and race cast cars, and we'd we'd go back up to Soville and work on the cars, and then we'd have an ARCA race come up, so we'd have to come back to the south and work on the ARCA cars. So we were kind of back and forth quite a bit, and uh, he had picked up NTM bearings for a sponsor, which was a big deal, you know, um, financially helped him do a lot of racing, and we heard through the grapevine that they might be going away, mm. and Marty and I were uh wanted we still wanted to go bigger right we wanted to go cup racing so marty <laughs> marty said to me dude we need to we need to find we need to find out how to get out of here because i don't know how long this is going to last right so we're like all right what should we do and marty's like let's let's just go get a job i'm like well how you can't just go get a job so we started interviewing we started doing the same thing going around shop to shop yeah and i mean most guys will know but for people who don't know that's where every race shop is, is within, what, a 20-kilometer radius. Yeah, I'd say 95% of the shops are all there. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of, some of the big tracks are close by. A lot of short tracks are there. Um, parts are everywhere. Um, where if you get away from that Charlotte area where all the teams are, it's harder to get parts. Um, you know, they're right next door if you need to get something so you can do it really fast. Um, I had some friends that lived in uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And he, he used to just joke with me where he, if he needed a pop rivet, it took him a week to get a pop rivet, right? Because right. it's not accessible. <laughs> so so uh, Marty and I started going around shop to shop. And uh, Marty called Andy Graves. He was a tire guy at Hendrick and told him about me. And he said, you know, he's a fabricator. He can do a lot of stuff. And um, Andy told him to, to send me over. So I, I came, went over there and interviewed with a guy named Eddie Dickerson. And... Uh, they, that was in the body hanging department at Hendrick, and I liked doing a lot of sheet metal stuff. I, when I built my own cars, that was kind of my niche to, to do all the sheet metal stuff on them. I kind of got out of the engine building part. Um, and where did you pick up those fab skills with Gibbons? Um, just when I was building my own cars, yeah. I would I build a car, and then you just learn ideas, and I'm like, I wonder if I could apply this to like a, a real car down south, you know? Um, Obviously, they were they were ahead of me, but I just thought I was pretty smart at the time. <laughs> but uh, so uh, let's fast forward to you got the interview with, yep, with the team. Yeah, with Andy Graves moved moved me over to uh, got switched me on to Eddie Dickerson. Eddie Dickerson ran the body hanging department, and he said if whenever uh, if you don't find anything, come back in a week. 
so, so I went back in a week, and he said, ah, I don't really have anything yet, but um, I'll keep your number. It's like, I, okay. So Marty and I said, let's go to, we'll go to Richmond and watch cup race. So we got pit passes, and I was walking around, and I seen Eddie Dickerson, and he said, hey, are you going to come and work for me or what? And I was kind of like, I, at the time, he wasn't really going to hire anybody, you know, so he said, uh, come next week, you can start. So I was like, perfect. Well, so I did this, I did that, I went down. Started there uh, October first, nineteen ninety six. Marty hadn't found a job yet, so he was he was at Gibbons still. So he had he had made this introduction for you. He had the connection. Okay. So Marty was kind of a manager type position for Peter, right. and uh, Peter and I built the cars and built the motors. Um, so Marty kind of helped run the team, manage the sponsors, uh, travel, all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, Marty called me one day and he said, "Hey." I got a job. I'm like, awesome, cool. It was about two weeks after I started Hendrick. I said, okay, cool. So we're both out of we're both out of Gibbons. We can, you know, start going on this cup deal. And I said, what did you find? Oh, dude, you're not gonna believe this. And I said, what? He said, bullshit, baffles brains. He said, I'm gonna be the team manager for Cranifus Haas. And I'm like, are you serious? This guy from Barry's gonna manage a cup team? Yeah. Sure enough, he did and killed it. Wow. It was awesome. He did a really good job. Wow. So he just. So that's how we kind of got in the cup series. That's great. That's great. So what was the jump like from the Gibbons shop to, you know, the biggest cup shop in the sport? Or or was it at the time? It was it was big. So the there were so many employees there um, that it was overwhelming at first. Um, but you could see how fast they built cars, which was really neat. And and they had parts guys that would have stuff already made for you to put on the car. So it kind of sped things up a lot. So you And it's the same thing as anything else. Um, you just climb the ladder. So I started at the bottom um, building parts. Um, then I got a surface plate hanging bodies. And uh, that company, there's so many people and so many creative people. Like I, I was creative, right? But the people were, that worked there were way more creative than me. And they taught you everything. So it was really cool. So I, once you once you have the aspiration to want to do that and somebody's going to teach you you catch on really fast so so it wasn't it didn't take me long to learn and then i was in the in the gas really hard the whole time so were you on a specific car when you were first hired or a specific team no so the way they did it their body hanging department they had four plates and it just whatever whatever car got done first it would come off and then the next car would go on and you just stayed on that plate so Whatever, it didn't matter whose car it was. Um, once the once you got one done, they put the next one on. In time, it did switch to specific teams per plate. So crew chiefs would obviously the the most winning crew chief will get the best body hangers, and went down the line. But yeah. Okay. Now, and maybe I'm fast forwarding. I don't I don't know. You uh, were a front tire changer. How did that deal come come about? Because that's you know that's different than fa- fabricating parts or hanging bodies. Yeah, I know for sure. So, well, when I worked for Peter, we had you know to do pit stops, and we were you have to do everything. It was pretty clunky. It wasn't really clean, but we we had we did what we had to do. Yeah. And uh, they had obviously f- at the time there was three cup teams at Hendrick, and they had they were always developing pit crew people mm. and teaching them, and and the coaching there was really really good. So, um, at lunchtime and after work. Each day I would go down and just hit lug nuts and the coach would come over but just for fun or it was encouraged because I could see that there was 
people that always move up and there was a little bit of turnover, not a lot, but people would move up and have, you'd have opportunity to get on a pit crew, right. And make more money. And at the time there wasn't, there wasn't like athletes for a pit crew, right? All the pit crew was shop guys. Right. So it was guys who were going to the track anyways. Correct. So I'd work with them side by side during the day and then they'd be gone on the weekend and I'd be like, that's really cool. Like I get to work with them and they get to do that too. I'm like, I want to do that. Mm. You know? So I started uh, just hitting lug nuts every day for probably six months. And then coaches would start seeing you're getting better. So they give you some pointers and then, then you started getting really good. Right. And um, even though there wasn't an opening for our teams, they farmed a lot of people out. Okay. So they didn't mind. No, they didn't mind at all. No, even, they would even lend you to a cup team just for experience, right? Because the better you got, um, eventually you would help them. So it was, it was, it was good for both sides. Um, so they, I got sent to, I don't know how many bush teams, probably 30 different bush teams over the years that I changed tires for. And, uh, we were at Rockingham one day. I went with, uh, I went with our cup team, even though I wasn't on a pit crew, you could still go with the cup team. So I went to Rockingham and it was a rain out and they were looking for a tire changer. I, I didn't know at the time our coach came down and asked me, Hey, do you want to, you want to stay here Monday and run the cup race for the 90 car, the, that Dick trickle drives for. And I'm like, seriously, like this could be my first opportunity to change tires in the cup series. And they're like, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I stayed Monday and Tommy Baldwin was the crew chief. He also changed tires back then. That was normal. And uh, so I changed front tires that day. Uh, Tommy changed rears. And I think we finished fifth, which was crazy because to me, I didn't. I think we're supposed to run that good because I'm, I'm from Hendrick, right? We always run that good. Yeah. So they finished. They were like super, super pumped that they finished the top five. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> you know? But, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was my first uh, tire change experience. And then it, and it just took off from there. And were you like, were you, do you remember how nervous you were? Were you pretty nervous for that stop? I was pretty nervous, yeah, but it, it, that same nervousness never goes away. So I changed tires for 10 years, and I was still as nervous when I ended as when I was starting. So, sure. yeah. There's a lot of pressure. Right, I, and I think that's, you know, I think maybe more and more as, as um, you know, social media and, and you know, uh, the broadcast in, in NASCAR kind of explores different avenues of, of where to point the camera. But I, I think it's really underappreciated by the majority of people, like, just how important that you know potentially that last pit stop is you know you could you could pass five or six guys without having to actually pass them on the track and go out and be a slower car and win the race just because of those five guys yeah and and over time it got like i think you were under a microscope you know obviously in the 60s and 70s 80s 90s it got work you got you know it's like you're under a microscope even more and there was more pressure Mm -hmm. so you could there was more pressure to gain spots on pit road as time went on right. and they seen how we, yeah, I'm not going to say it was easy, but it's easier to pass me on pit road than it is on the racetrack. Right. My goodness. Yeah. yeah. So they really put a lot of pressure and that's, that's what, what created the turnover. So there there's, even though you were on a picker, it didn't mean you were locked in for the whole year because if somebody better than you came along, they're going to pick that person up. Right. Because it's free spots on pit road. Right. Right now. And I've seen it now, you know, where they're, they're actively kind of drafting athletes, guys who have grown up since they were kids who are athletes. When did that kind of switch happen in Uh, the sport? When I was getting out of it, I quit changing tires. I think it was in 2005 or six, I stopped changing tires and it was really ramping up then where 
they didn't want to use shop guys as much as um, athletes. They wanted they wanted somebody to work out all day and do pit stops five days a week and not work in the shop. And uh, once the other teams, I'm not saying it was just we didn't. Hendrick doesn't. He it didn't start with Hendrick with athletes. Other teams are doing it also. But once they seen the potential having having athletes, it really ramped up. Um, and now we have uh, I think it's probably two or three times a year we have tryouts. So your your job is not guaranteed for the whole entire year. Um, they'll 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 seek athletes all year long. And if they can find somebody, you'll either get moved to one of the other teams or possibly get bumped out. But it doesn't it doesn't happen as much anymore because there's so many athletes um, and they're so good that. Um, they're going to pay the money to have somebody, you know, from a football team or something like that that can outdo any other guy in a pit crew. Right, right. I remember that just being the biggest shock the first time I, you know, it's like, it, this looks like a college, you know, facility for, like, there's a full gym here, there's a football field, there's a track, like yeah. crazy. Yeah, and it, it's hard because, so when, we'll back up a little bit, when I got in, into change of tires, I would I would be hanging bodies at the same time, and eventually I got moved to a shop, and I was working in the shop because it was harder for me to to be on that on a specific team, but not be in the shop during the day. So they moved me up uh, to the five the five team Terry Lebon was driving. Oh, I see. So you were changing tires for the five team, and there on weekends, right. but during the week you weren't. I'd be back in the body hanging hanging a body on one for any car. Yeah. So then they moved you to just the five car for Terry. Yep, yep. And then I I was in the shop building cars, um, and then going to pit practice workout so at like nine o'clock i'd be like all right guys i gotta go i'll be back at lunch and and i come back and the part that i was working on when i left at nine o'clock was on the car done i'm like well this kind of sucks like somebody else is doing my job okay. and then i like the picker side of it it was a lot of fun um the money's really good obviously right. and uh i was kind of tore between somebody doing my job and the picker side of it and you know as, as i aged um Younger kids are getting better, right. and we had 600 employees at the time, and I, I didn't want to be the guy that held 600 employees back from a win, sure. right? When these younger kids are coming, athletes are coming, and uh, in 19 uh, or sorry, in 2004 or five, I stopped changing on the five. On sorry, not the five. I changed for quite a few cars at, at Hendrick. I quit changing tires for the whole season, and I did a part-time schedule in uh, 2005 and six. And then uh, that that was I was done changing tires after that. Just stayed in the shop. So before this, John John came into my office and he showed me the highlight of you guys passing three guys on pit lane for Terry Labonte to win the Southern Five Hundred. Yeah, that was really cool. That was that was my first Cup win. Yeah. Yeah, and and so Terry Labonte is kind of a neat guy. Um, I know you met uh, Bobby. Yeah, I had him yeah. virtually on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's cool family. But even their dad, like Bob's awesome. Um, but so. Terry, if he came to the racetrack chewing a piece of gum, you were going to have a good day. Okay. You could tell. Okay. And he showed up at Darlington, and he was he's from uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, so he's used to the heat, and it didn't like he would never fall out of the seat because he was too hot. And uh, it was really hot that day, and he showed up at the racetrack chewing gum, and we're like, we should have a good day, you know? We didn't know we were going to win the race. But, yeah, we won the race because we beat, beat everybody off, off pit road in the last stop, so it was pretty exciting. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um you started, and I was just reading your bio, you started something called, uh, what was it, Pit Crew for Kids or something? Sure. Yeah. yeah. What, what was that deal? So, uh, because uh, the Pit Crews are like a, a little mini family. Mm -hmm. um, 
we always went to dinner, um, hung out. Like when we traveled, we'd go hang out. You know, we'd go tour around some um, baseball stadiums and stuff like that. We'd always do stuff together. And it w- I thought at Christmas time that one year, it'd be really cool if we could ever get into a hospital with uh, sick kids and take them Christmas presents. Mm. Like we would buy them and we'd just give them t- to the kids. And it, it didn't, I didn't know it was going to, it didn't turn into a huge deal, but it did, it did get the ball rolling pretty good. Um, so we went, I don't know how many, probably a couple years. We went two or three times a year. We'd go see the kids. We had a connection at work through, um, the Hendrick had a bone marrow program at work. And one of the girls that worked on that side of it kind of hooked us up with one of the kids hospitals, uh, in Charlotte. So we were able to get five or six guys together and a lot of people bought us gifts. So we had, we'd take a, a big van fill it full of gifts and we go to the hospital and hand them all out so it was really cool it's gratifying you know to see uh kids that weren't gonna have christmas at home um to try to bring it to the hospital so it was cool so you know those early 2000s you kind of step back from doing the pit crew stuff and you want to see your projects go start to finish uh your parts go start to finish when um when do you become kind of a an aero body hanging guy specialist type type dude in the shop as opposed to doing a whole ton of other stuff so uh hanging sheet metal putting bodies on um you push the envelope so you have a basically a build sheet that they would give you and obviously you have the rule book you have to be within templates you have to fit um we would kind of start getting creative and push the box every time and then you could get way outside the box and some people um just get really creative and learn how you can do stuff that people can't notice. Uh, so is it all, so y- you guys obviously have your own templates just like NASCAR does. And for people who don't know, they just back then they'd sit them on the car yeah, and you got to, m- right. And you've got to meet, you know, different tolerances between the body and the template. Was everything that was creative just within those gaps of the template? You know, those places where the template wasn't? That was half of it. So there was a lot of measurements that NASCAR used, and they had gauges. Um, So at the time, they were learning that they should keep a wrap on the body connected to the suspension. That way they could uh, police it without getting too far outside the box. Because you can, if a body didn't know where the tires were, you could get really crazy. And NASCAR wanted to keep the body within the tires, um... I see. So, like, physically having the body shifted over left and right. up. Okay. So they started making gauges to go with the templates. Mm. And then we would get, you know, ideas how we can try to to fudge it. Um, So let me tell you about Hendrick a little bit. Yeah. So the people, um, and not, I mean, people in racing in the South are the best in the business, right? Hendrick has this thing that a lot of other teams don't and it's just like their culture like the way they treat people uh, the way they uh work together um the way they teach you there's it's it divides um a lot of teams into like what makes hendrick better than everybody else and, and i mean a lot of the big teams are like that now but it's the culture it's like what they what they mold you to be while you're there and it's the reason why a lot of people don't leave because it's addicting and and uh is it from the top down is it from mr h absolutely yeah yeah like they 
they have the Kool-Aid, but you want to drink it, yeah. right? You want to be part of what they have going on. Yeah. So <clears throat> I learned from the people that were there. Um, some of the some of the smartest people around, best fabricators that you can imagine. Um, they taught me a lot of stuff, and and then you could be, then you had the, this creative side that you knew. Hey, you know, I can I can do stuff that maybe the guy beside me won't even notice that I'm doing after it's done. And, and those people worked hand in hand with like our aero group. Um, so our aero group would give you an idea, hey, what if we did this? Could you figure out how to do it? And there was a small group of us that, um, that you could see had that concept, how to, how to do it. Mm. And that, that pool of people got smaller. So the aero guys were looking at it, say, how can we, whatever, make more force here on the car or in this specific area on the car? And they'd theorize how to do it and say, can you build it and get away with it? So what we did in the wind tunnel a lot is we would find the sensitive parts of the car where the most fruit was. And we would try to hone in on that and and try to figure out what what made that part of the car so sensitive. Mm. and, And how can we make that specific spot generate more power than other parts of the car so we would just focus on certain areas and uh just develop try to you know we do crazy stuff sometimes you have to go way outside the box to realize that okay yeah this is where we need to work or, or we don't need to work in this spot anymore sure. so <clears throat> our our aero group would say these are the sp- these are the spots we need to work in we know you can't do this shape but can you make something that would mimic it mimic it and, but create the same numbers right the same effect and uh, so it was like a, a, a tier, right? The higher people would, would come to us, lower people that were creative, and then we would do stuff that people under us didn't know we were doing. Right. And, uh, and the whole garage turned into that. Um, and an arrow is, is only a tool. It's just like a shock or a spring um, sway bar. It's just, a, it's just something that you can make the back of the car work better or the front or the side. Right, it's just a tool, and you can change the balance of the car aerodynamically. Um, so they taught me as I went along, and then you grit scroll like a flower, right? I just I just learned more and more, and I started coming up with ideas, and not just me, smart people yeah. at Hendrick helped everybody, and it and it was it was really cool. It was a a cool journey. I'm still there doing the same thing, yeah. but uh, the car has changed a lot over time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was looking at uh, some of those pictures during that kind of era you're talking about in the 05 06 07 can you because you're going to be able to explain it better than i will like just how cocked up those cars were and how jacked up they looked you know from overhead shots and whatnot we twisted sisters we, we had names on all these cars too we'd, we'd like make nicknames just because we do some crazy stuff and uh that specific thing that we did to that car we just name it you know yeah. and uh yeah there's I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can do. Um, uh, j- when when they come up with a rule, we would just try to twist that rule and try to take out of it what they didn't write in that rule. Right. And there is stuff, like there's loopholes in rules still today. You just have to figure out how to do it um, in the best way that they can't tell you did it. And if you have to move a seam so the measurement's different from, from that line to the next line, mm. you can just move stuff around or <laughs> templates. There's... There's all kinds of ways to make a template look like it fits, but even though it doesn't really fit, um, you got all the fruit out that you're going to get out of that spot. So, right now, I don't know if there, I don't know if you can talk about it, but even you know, do you have some some 
a good story or, or a, an example of something that happened kind of in those early 2000 years that that's just, I can't believe we got away with that or we only got away with it for one race or we got caught or we got a slap on the wrist. Yeah, there's th- there's a laundry list, a laundry list of that stuff that because um, you do it every day, like every day is a new cool part. Right. So uh, there was uh, I built a, a deck lid for uh, a car. I was I ended up moving to the five car. I, I, I latched on one of our crew chiefs and, and he he carried me from if he got moved to a different team or a different department and work, he'd take me with him. Um, so we Kyle Bush was our driver and I made a, a deck lid that would move back. It would move up and back at the start of the race. So we did it. We were going to incorporate it in all of our cars, but we didn't really know if we were going to get by with it. So we did it for the all-star race at Charlotte. And uh, I don't, I think Kyle was maybe leading, but he got racing his brother and the two of them went into one and they, they touched and they both spun coming off a two and he hit the wall and the deck like flew off it like instantly. So the only thing we didn't realize was that uh, we got everything out of it we wanted, but it really wasn't gonna. You couldn't. You couldn't hurt the car because it wasn't gonna stay on it, right. right? If it got turned around, so it came off right away. Right. How did you get it to move? I can't tell you that. Okay. <laughs> thought I'd ask. I, I thought that was the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then I, we got into doing body work too. So the the position that I was in to 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 finish the job, you you almost had to do it yourself for two reasons to get to get everything out of it that you wanted it to look like when it was done and be efficient. But you also didn't, you didn't want everybody in the shop to know what you did because there's some leaks still today in some teams, right? So you you can't let everybody know. And obviously when you do find something, you kind of want to keep it for a few weeks. It's really hard to keep something in the garage for more than a couple of weeks because somebody, they always, because everybody's got eyes. Um, Nowadays teams hire photographers and we get like hundreds of pictures of everybody else's cars every every weekend and they're all doing it too we're not the only ones but uh so i got into doing body work um on the stuff that i would do like and there was uh there was one of a person in my position on each of our cars at the time and we still do it the same way today and uh, we would we would do our little treatments on the car and then we'd do our body work over top of it and finish it out so Now, I guess during that that era there, you were probably I'm sure you were recognized as a as a talent there. Did you get offers from other teams? I did. Yeah. And why what kept you loyal there? I'm sure people were moving around all the time and that's kind of the norm down there. So, being a young guy down there, um I started to race myself too. Um and there's a small spot in all of us that has greed right so i wanted i thought i could get more money um so i, st- I started searching around there was only one year i did it I, w- I went on two job interviews i went to robert yates um interviewed there and then i went to uh, dei and what turned me off was i went to dei and um during my interview they told me that they don't need anybody to come in here and, and start something new or change what we're doing we just need a worker to come in here and just mm-hmm. build what we're building and that turned that took my creative side out of it mm. totally turned me off and and i knew that where i was was my home um so i never left i've been there for 26 years i don't have a, sh- a closet full of different team shirts right i, I just have hendrick shirts in my closet so right. now was there and did it change throughout the time because you've been there f- for so many years 
the competition between teams. How did that evolve? And Huge. So going back to the Hendrick culture. So Mr. Hendricks had a vision for our company for, you know, since I'll, I'm sure since it started. Um, when, when it grows that fast and that big, um, there's always, it's always divided. Um, and we had, try, we had to try to house everybody in, in that complex where you can't put everything under one roof. So there's different buildings. Well, then you get into competition from one building to the next. We had, uh, at the time, I think we had, uh, Jeff Gordon was there, Jimmy Johnson, um, Kyle Bush was there. And I think Dale Jr. was there. So I'll, one building would always race the other building. Like if we could beat those two cars on a weekend, then we beat the best in the business. The, the problem was we couldn't go in their shop and they couldn't come in our shop, which from the outside, you find that really hard to believe. Yeah. But from the inside, that's how it was. Like if I walked in their building, you would, you'd get stared down as soon as you walked in the door and they'd want to know what you were doing there. Um, because they, they were under the same assumption. If you had a, a product on the car, they could w win them the race. They want to keep it so they can win. They don't want to share it because then you would possibly take a win from them. Mm. For years, Mr. Hendricks said we have to work together and we're stronger together. So if we can all have the same parts, we can all win, right? We all get the same bonus. We all get paid the same. And it took, it took a really long time. Like I, like I said, I've been there for 26 years and only the past probably eight or 10 years, we actually worked together. And now uh, we are all under one roof. Like all the f all four teams are under one roof, meaning the crew chiefs are in there. We assemble the cars. The final assembly gets done in the same shop. Setups get in the same shop. We're all like side by side. So you can't have a secret between the four cars. The crew chiefs are all in the same meeting every single week. Um, all their notes are shared, which they said they used to share the notes. But you would get you would get like some of their notes on 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 Friday when they left. But then you get their real notes on Monday when they got back, and and that's when you realize then then you realize that what they showed me Friday is not what they raced, and that's that's why we got beat. So it's open book now, and, and everybody works together, and it and it's like the concept Mr. Hendrick had back then is working now. Like he proved you can do it, and it's and it definitely worked. Now we don't win all the races, but if we if one of our cars runs good, we all run good, and if we run bad, we all run bad. But we did it together, right. Right, so you think that helps? Absolutely, yeah. yeah be, because I can go to one of the f other four guys, or four teams, and and show them something, and they'll be like, "We tried that; it didn't work." Or, "Dude, that's awesome! Let's let's all four run it this weekend." Right. So, together, collectively, it's it's definitely better having more because you just have more power between f four teams than yeah, more data. You get you get a, yeah the response back quicker for sure, huh? Uh. I've got a list of questions because John came up to my office. He said, "Okay, ask about your eyeball." He said, "Anytime, anytime, anytime John says, hey, I got an idea or ask him this, I get nervous. <laughs> I've only got two more. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have two kids. And uh, if if you're in racing, you have this massive competitive uh, part of your brain that you're so competitive and you want to win. Um, as my, as I, tr so let me go back to when I traveled, changing tires, I was gone every weekend. So you'd pack your bag Thursday, get on a plane, take off, come back Sunday. 
So I would be gone and I would get messages from my wife or my buddies and be like, hey, we took your kids dirt biking this weekend or we went to the pool. And and I was like, man, this really sucks. Like, I'm, yeah. it's cool I have this life at the racetrack, but I'm missing a life with my kids. So at the end of uh, 2004, I think it was, um, it was close to the end of the season. I decided I didn't want to change tires anymore. I wanted to spend weekends at home with my kids. So I did that. Um, I stayed in the shop, worked uh, five days a week in the shop. I still got to travel on weekends because they um, needed a body guy at the racetrack because um, with our old car, if you slap the wall or something in practice, um, you're allowed to fix it. And, and they don't take body guys to the racetrack typically um, as part of the team. So um, they started taking body guys every weekend. So that's how I got traveling, just, just like one day a week instead of four days a week. So I stayed on home on weekends with my kids. Well – since I raced, I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if I could like carry out my dream, but let my kids race. So I bought some go-karts and, uh, we started racing. I'm kind of going to jump through this kind of fast just because Uh, we can, we can take our time. We'll go back to the eyeball. I'll I'll remind you. Ball story. (laughs) So we started racing go-karts. No, because I mean, yeah, take your time on this. Cause I think to this day, my most fond memories are being at the go-kart track with my dad. If you're if, if you're a go-kart racer, and I'm sure there's a ton of people that you're friends with that are listening to the show that, that have go-kart raced, the most inspirational part of racing is, like, when you go-kart race, it's family-oriented, and everybody helps everybody. And as soon as they plant the seed in you in, in go-kart racing, it carries you all the way through every level that you go through, right? Because it started there. And it you, you don't know this when you start, but you – it really gets weeded out and, and dissolves as you climb the ladder. But that's where it started. So we really, really loved that part of it. So we started go-kart racing, and we did it for I don't know how many years, and we were really good at it. They, okay. I was I built their cars, right. and, and then I have both my boys were racing, and, of course, they were super competitive. Yeah. And uh, they they were like Hendrick having two teams. They raced each other, right? They were they didn't care about the whole field. They were more. They just wanted to beat each other. And this is what uh, like quarter midgets or this was a uh, champ carts. So we were in the WKA um, go kart series with the champ carts. So it was a go kart with a roll cage on it. Right, oval oval asphalt. We did both. We did roll courses and ovals. Okay. Yep, and we did anywhere. F- we went all the way from like South Carolina to to uh, New York. Wow. Yeah, and uh, we ran their whole points deal. Um, for a couple seasons, but um, Cole's my oldest son, and my and Ryan's my my younger one, and the two of them um, got really competitive. Uh, Cole would uh, he was always fast. Ryan was a couple years younger, so he wasn't quite as fast as Cole. And Ryan, um, he's like a social butterfly, so he's hard to keep up with at a racetrack. You know, he, you have your, his car ready to go, but you can't find him, and it kind of. It kind of blended into his lifestyle from there too. So we get up in the morning super early to go to the racetrack, and I'd wake up Cole and be like, "Hey, we got to go to the racetrack, Ryan. Hey, we got to go to the racetrack." Ryan's like, "I'm, I'm not getting up. I'm sleeping." I'm like, "You have to qualify in like two hours. I'm just gonna stay here." So we go to the racetrack, and Cole practiced both cars really? for me because I, Ryan wasn't there. Yeah. So Ryan would show up for qualifying, just show up and get in it and go. And we sat on the front row uh, nine out of the ten races. And it was, I think they were, we sat on, I want to say, all every, every, all ten, all ten races we were on the front row, but nine of them, both of them were on the front row. Okay. It was really cool. So, 
So while we were racing go-karts, we went to uh, New York. I think it was we were coming back or Pennsylvania. And uh, it was about 3 o'clock in the morning going through West Virginia. I noticed that the, the chrome piece on the front of my trailer had come off. Or it was, it was still attached, but it was flopping in the wind. So we pulled over, and I was like, I got I to gotta get up on the roof, and I got to drill this piece off, you know. So I got up on the roof of my trailer, super dark. We are in this gas station. It was closed. We were the only ones in the parking lot. And uh, I started – I didn't have a flashlight, so I was just drilling these pop rivets out. And, you know, it's like when you don't have the right drill, but you just, like, hog the thing out. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I was, like, trying to drill these rivets out, and the drill bit broke. And when, it dr- when the drill bit broke, a shard of it went through my eye. Um, and it went like all the way through it, cleaned everything out. Like, it was bad. <laughs> it wasn't like it wasn't like I was walking around the drill, but sticking out of my eye. There was a piece of it that went through, and uh, it cut. It went all the way back and cut my retina. So we're on the side of the road, and I was, I was like shaking my head. My wife's like, "You all right?" And I'm like, "It's really bad." And she's like, "What's wrong?" And I'm like, "It's bad." So she, at the time, she didn't even know. So I, I jumped down, got the piece off, jumped down off the roof. And it was like when you dump cooking oil in a in a bowl of water, it all separates. Well, all I could see was like black, but it was like all separated. So I knew there was something bleeding, but it wasn't. Oh, you couldn't sure. see it, right? She couldn't see it. Yeah. So I was like, "Hey, we have to go to a hospital," but I'm not going to a hospital in West Virginia. Yeah. I'm like, "We're going home." Yeah. <laughs> so she drove the truck and trailer back to Mooresville. Kids were in the back seat sleeping. Uh, Did it hurt? It didn't hurt that bad. So fast forward in the surgeries, they hurt way more than what the actual injury did. But no, it didn't really hurt. We got home, dropped the kids off at our house. A friend of ours took them to school, I think it was. I don't know. It was kind of a blur to me at that point. And then her and I went to the hospital in Charlotte, and they did surgery at, like, noon, I think, something like that. And when when the piece went through my eye, there's a – you have a lens in your eye that's kind of like a camera that helps everything focus. And once you damage uh, the lens, they can't they can't fix it. They just have to take it out. And there's a little sack that the lens is actually in. Well, it cut the it cut the lens, the sack, retina, everything. They reattached the retina, but I didn't have a lens, so I couldn't I could see light, but I couldn't make anything out of that out of that eye. So I always use this example to people like the our car numbers on our door. Race cars are huge, right? Yeah. And if I covered my good eye, I, c- I couldn't even make out what that was. And that was in, I think it was like April or May, somewhere around there. I waited till New Year's Eve and had an artificial lens uh, put in. Oh, so you lived half a half a year. Yeah. Like f- totally blind in one eye. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and worked. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, I had an artificial lens put in uh, New Year's Eve, and then I was uh, 2080 in one eye and 2020 in the other eye. So I'm still like that today. Okay. Uh, that's the story then. Yeah, that's my eyeball story. Uh, So do you think... You know, my uh, going to the the track, I just look at, I, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think about you guys go-kart racing, how much of an advantage your boys would have having you as their fabricator and crew chief compared to a lot of the guys. And did that, um, you know, racing go-karts or even late models or whatever it be down in the southeast compared to, say, up here, just how many guys are working full-time in a cup shop and also at those races, you know, supporting their kids in go-karting. Yeah. Like, how, how 
much more competitive is it down there be just because of everyone's dad is you know a wizard compared to some guy who's a an accountant up here yeah like the competition level there is huge right like you can be a small fish at a big pond down there or you can be a the opposite up here yeah. and and uh the competition level there's you know huge it's it makes it really hard to to gain a lot of ground because you're everybody wants the same thing there so everybody's asked the same sponsor to you know hey we need help um they've already been in every door around there um that that part of it is really hard mm -hmm. as far as being um a cup guy and racing in a smaller division like go-karting for your kids and stuff i don't know that it's a a huge advantage honestly okay. it's just like i said it's a tool aero aerodynamics is just a tool right. um but what we did have that other people didn't have is the desire to make like the nicest coolest shit out there okay. right so our cars were beautiful right. and and i didn't do it by myself and i i'm not the smartest guy i'm not like the best guy in the business i'm pretty modest you know um but we had fun and and I, I, I hate going to the racetrack if, like, you have dirty wheels in your car. You can't put your car in the trailer if you, got, like, wax the whole car, but the wheels still have brake dust in them from the last yeah. race. You have to clean. Everything has to look nice always. So we, we, we paid attention to detail really um, on all of our stuff for all the years that we raced. And I think um, talking to people like uh, my one son, like I said, is a social butterfly. My other son is really quiet. And I'm – I would say I'm in the middle, but they're going to tell you that I'm, I probably talk more than anybody, <laughs> but I would go around and talk to people and learn. Right. And that, that was another piece that was an advantage because I would ask a lot of people about, you know, different parts of the car, what, what, what makes it tick and, uh, just get a notebook and, and make, you know, all the, get all the stuff you can get, put it in your notebook and then you can you, you it basically translates as you go up level to level. Right. So um yeah that's i think that was the advantage that we have it wasn't really because you were a cup guy i think it's just because we're programmed different because like the quality of work that we have our cars are so nice and you go to you know like a, a short track somewhere else they're a little bit rougher right so i would always really thrive on making the most nicest pieces and cars and parts and everything right so then uh with with cole your oldest son you guys went uh late model racing and super late model racing like when he was pretty pretty young yeah um so when we were racing go-karts um this is kind of a funny story i tell a lot of people this um uh, we got back from a race in new york and like i said ryan didn't like to practice a lot and the rougher the track was the more he hated it <laughs> and um we got home from a race and he said hey dad i still remember this i'll never forget this in my shop i have a staircase going upstairs and he was sitting on the stairs, and he said, hey, Dad, I, you can go ahead and sell all my all my stuff. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And he said, I don't, I don't think I want my go-kart anymore. I'm like, why? And he said, well, there's more sad days in racing than there is good days. And I'm like, damn, this guy's got to figure it out. Yeah. Right? He's totally, totally correct. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't like that aspect of it, which is fine. Yeah. You know, it's I totally get it. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm not going to sell it yet. I'm going to let you think about it. But if you decide that you don't want to do it anymore – you're not gonna hurt my feelings, right? right? Life goes on. We'll find something else to do, and uh, yeah, from that day on, he was done. And which I don't blame him. I, I totally get it. It's a competitive sport. Um, you got to be wired, you know, a different way to, to be a racer 
to do it full time or, or even not even if you do it on a part time schedule to, to go back every weekend and get beat down and, and want to come back to do it again. Um, it, it'd be like a bad golfer, right? You hit the ball in the woods all the time and who'd want to do that and, and keep coming back. But that's how that's what racers do. So uh, we got uh, we got through friends in Canada. Um, Scott Nagel um, is part of the Shepherd Pete Shepherd family clan over there yeah. uh their son wanted to race bandoleros so they purchased one through uh a friend some friends that we had in, in the south and we bought basically their whole program and uh scotty would come he would just fly down and we kept all their stuff at my house we would maintain it and scotty would come down and, and race on wednesday nights at, at lowe's motor speedway so they ended up buying another car so they had a spare and because scott wasn't down a lot there was two cars sitting in my garage, right? And Cole's got this like, hey, we should we should race one of these things. Yeah. So I got I got talking to Scott, and he's like, yeah, yeah, take take it out, you know, do whatever, I don't care. We start beating the bush a little bit about this, and and got and got some sponsors for the Bandolero. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Owens. Yeah. Of course, we wanted to make it look good, so we we got it wrapped, and then uh, we ran some races, and he did really really good. And it's like this is. We didn't win races right away, but you can see the potential, right? When you start racing, if you're competitive and and you can make moves that other people aren't making, you you, you want to go more, right? So, so we got talking to Marty Gaunt. Marty's like, "Hey, I'll sponsor you guys." So he gave us money. We we got another car. And what was explain what Marty was doing at this time? Oh, let me back up. Yeah. So Marty bought uh, Bill Davis Racing. Um, he had went to a truck team. I think he might have been a part owner or something in a truck team. But then he went and got. Um, Part, he bought out Bill Davis Racing somehow. You know, Marty, bullshit baffles brains. Somehow he bought out Bill Davis Racing. Uh, he sold the whole race car side and then grew the engine side. He kept the engine side, but took the money and, and built it up really big, um, which turned in into Triad um, technolo- Racing Technologies in Mooresville. And he ended up moving shop from where their team was to Mooresville. Uh, I think he got another building and then got connected with Toad, and it really took off for him in that side. Yeah, building Toyota engines. Yeah, Toyota engines, and he got the sheet metal side also. So down south, what happens, or at the time, when we were running our steel body cars, you had to run a stock roof, hood, and trunk lid. Mm. So the, the manufacturers would give you stock roofs, hoods, and trunk lids, and, and the hoods and deck lids had liners, so you had to run the trunk, you had to run the, the deck lid liner as a rule. Um, all that stuff for the Toyota side went through Marty. So Marty housed all that stuff, um, and they, they don't just sell it to anybody. Like, you couldn't a Chevrolet guy couldn't go there and buy it, right? So he, he managed all that. Um, so he, I know he didn't get anything out of sponsoring our Bandolero, right. but he wanted to help us. That's how Marty is. And that's, from my impression, that's how a lot of the, the Canadian guys down there kind of all helped each other out. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you know somebody from Canada there, like, I, I talk to people. A friend of ours actually works at Gibbs, and we, we talk all the time. And, and uh, the Canadian connection, you always kind of – keep those people close to you right so but yeah marty always took care of us we marty and i are great friends still today um obviously he's their uncle so he takes care of them so he sponsored you guys and uh and now you're you know you're out of go-karts with with cole and you're off to the races yep so we went to our first race was at uh i think it was at dylan speedway which is a three-eighths mile um for one of those little bandoleros so it was like a super speedway right but uh, we went there. Same thing. I learned a lot of a lot of things from other people, not necessarily my doing, right? And uh, built my notebook. And we went there and won the very first race that we ran that year. And uh, 
Charlotte was tougher for us. Um, the there's the pool of people at race there is obviously huge compared to you know some other tracks that we would go to, but it was just hot. the competition was super hard there. Um, the racing, you know, like you, you can blame it on whoever you want, but the racing's rough, right? So they kind of knock people out of the way and stuff. So we we had a harder uh, run at it at Charlotte. We still ran good, um, but uh, it was it was difficult. And uh, I really had this itch to get a late model. Um, I, hel- I helped a guy that I work with. He had a late, uh, late model. He had some super late models, actually. And uh, I, I myself built a brand new super late model when I moved um, here with Peter. Uh, when I was working for Peter, I kind of still wanted to race. Um, even though I only ran hobby cars, I wanted to race a super late model because that's where it was at down here. The biggest class was super late models. They had late model stocks and some other smaller classes, but super late models was they had the big 10 series at concord speedway and i really wanted to run the big 10 series there's only 10 races i could kind of squeeze it in between work and and that well what i didn't know is uh when i got on at hendrick pretty quickly i started changing tires right so the as soon as once i got my car done i was at hendrick by that at that point but i was gone on weekends now and I was like, what am I, you know, what am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to race. Yeah. But this tire changing deal is really good gig. Like, I can make money doing this. Um, the Big Ten series dissolved mm-hmm. at Concord. So then I was kind of sitting on this car that I didn't know where I was going to race it. So I decided that I really should be an adult and sell my car and buy a house. Okay. So I sold my car and I took that money and put it on a deposit for my house and I bought a house. But I still had this itch that I wanted a late model. And I was to the point where I think I was too old, getting too old to start over again racing. But I had this kid with a lot of talent that I still wanted to see how far we could go. Uh, so a guy that, I, like I was saying, that I worked with, that I was helping, had a, he had a couple cars, and he had, he had a car that he had flipped over and wrecked um, that he wasn't going to use anymore. It was just sitting there, and he was going to give me this killer deal. He gave me a bunch of parts with it and stuff, so I bought it. Mm-hmm. And they were starting a new series um, – it was a Northern series. It was a past, uh, past super late model series out of Maine. We're going to start this past South pro late model series. And uh, it was a brand new series. I read the rules. It seemed like it was pretty economical, smart, great motor. With a, It was like a pro late model. Okay. So when, uh, when Cole was 12, I got that car home. And I said, listen, for a guy at 12, it's a huge dream, right? Like, oh, I'm going to yeah. race this car. It's badass. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to do it alone. So I said, if you want to do this, you know, you're going to be in the shop with me yeah. doing it. Yeah. So, and, and actually I, that I kind of started in the go-kart days. I made him work like Cole was always in the shop on the go, help me with go-karts. Um, and then Bandoleros, um, he actually got into like, I, I knew how to wrap cars at work, but then he started doing all the decals and wrapping cause he saw me doing it and he, he kind of, he didn't ask really. He just started doing it like he's. One, he's self-taught he can self-teach on a lot of stuff if he just if he sees you do it he can do it so we started rebuilding this late model um it was it was bad <laughs> i should have just bought another car <laughs> but it's one of those things you get started on you're so upside down in it but i couldn't stop yeah. and uh we just had to get it done so we got it done i told him though we ran go-karts ran bandoleros i don't want a points race okay. because it's so hard on you and and it's already addicting all consuming Right. And I was like, I, it's going to kill us. Yeah. So the only way that we're not going to points race is if I don't let you start the first couple races because you're out of it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's fine. 
I was like, all right. So we went. Our car wasn't really ready at the time anyway, which worked out perfect. We went to the first couple races and, okay, uh, get our car done. Let's go. Wow. Uh, we started racing, and he was, like, on kill. At 12, I'm like, we're racing guys. You know, obviously there were some younger kids there too, but there was guys my age yep. that he was racing. And we ran the top three, like, every single night. I think it was – he can probably answer this better than me, but it might have been our third race or something. We won, um, oh, second race, <laughs> <laughs> second race in a prolate model. We won it at uh, what track was it? Cole, Motor Mile, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Half. It was almost. Uh, it was. It was a big. I don't know if it was three eighths or half mile. It was a big track, but it was. Yeah, our our, our second race out. He yeah. won. Did that shock you? Oh yeah, absolutely. This is a little kid. So we got the car done, and we we're like, we gotta go test it first. We went to Hickory. Uh, which is about 30 minutes from our house. And I was like, let's go shake this down. And at the time, we didn't really have it set up. It was just, let, let's let's get him out there and let's get it rolling, make sure we got everything on the car that, it, that we need to make it go, and then we'll come home and fine-tune it. And I still remember he came out of turn four one time and had the thing dead sideways. And I'm like, he just junked this car yeah. and drove out of it. I'm like, damn, this, this kid might have some talent. You know, it might be pretty good here. But anyways, uh, yeah, right away, uh, he took off on the thing, and we won a bunch of races. Come to the end of the year, we had won so many races, we were, like, second in points, even though we missed the first couple races, and we were like, damn, we might be able to win this thing. <laughs> so and we ended up finishing second in points that year. But, uh, yeah, right, right back in the points deal again. So I think uh, we ran a couple races the next year, and they, they were starting a new series called the Cars Tour Series. Yeah which was going to pay a lot of money. Um, they were hoping to draw on bigger name drivers, um, a bigger car count, you know, bigger, better tracks. Uh, it was really appetizing. So we, we built a brand new car. I think we ran a couple pass races with it and we, we built it so fast. I didn't, I didn't paint the chassis. I said, let's just build this thing, get it done. Let's go to the track and, and see if, the, if it's a good car. So when the car steward was getting ready to start, we're like, let's, let's strip this thing real quick. And we'll paint it and marty was still helping us so we're like okay let's we'll paint the chassis put the body back on it was going to go quick because it was already put together um wrapped it and uh went to our first race which was at southern national speedway it was the first cars to a race and nobody really knew what the car count was going to be like right because it was a new series super late models i, f I left that part out we went we, yeah, we got to supers we went from pro late models to supers <laughs> so a friend of mine is how old's cole now like 14 or 15 or something uh 14 i think he was when when so uh, the guy that i worked with that ran late models super late models his name is preston peltier him and i are really good friends uh he helped us through the whole journey of late models pros supers everything he helped us um when we were running pros though he built a brand new car to go the, the all-american 400 and it was like the best thing he's ever built like it, when you build cars even to me today like people ask me at work don't, don't you get pissed off like when they wreck them i'm like no because you get to build it better again yeah. right every time you do it it's better yeah. um well he built the best car he could build at the time he's built better cars since but at the time that was the best thing he's ever built and he said listen i want to go to to back to southern national race this weekend i want to take my all-american 400 car there though and just shake it down but i'm going to run because i think he, at the time he was running for points preston was but he said, Cole, I want you to drive my all-American car there. Like, just shake it down. I would just want you to run at the back. Just run a couple laps and we'll park it. And that way I know I can take it to Nashville, get all the bugs worked out of it. So 
we put him in the seat and of course he didn't fix he was so small yeah. so people my wife fuck killed me over this one people are gonna laugh we packed fuel cell foam all around him <laughs> which made him fit the seat pretty good it's almost like a fake liner right yeah. think it back it was the stupidest thing we could ever did but uh yeah so we put fuel cell foam around him and he went and uh i he was really fast. Like he went out in practice and it was like, damn, he's pretty fast in this thing. Never ran a super before. Yeah. And, uh, he, we did, we started the race, ran, a, I don't know, we probably ran more laps than we planned on. I think we ran 20 or 30 laps and, uh, we're like, okay, let's just park it. We don't wreck it. Cause that was, that was the best car Preston had. Right. Yeah. And, uh, then he had the itch. I want to, I want a super go with the power. Cause it was like, you're talking, I think a prolate model probably makes 400 horsepower, somewhere around there, 350, 400 horsepower. A super makes like 630 to 650. Yeah, that's fast. So we're like, okay, so we talked to Marty. We bought a motor for our prolate model and uh, put the super motor in our pro, which made it a super. And then after we ran, finished the year out, a couple races, we decided to build a new car, and that's how we ended up taking the car apart to paint to go run the Cars Tour. So... We go to the very first cars tour race, and uh, I think we we're the last or second last car to practice or to qualify. We, we were decent in practice. We were actually pretty good, like a top ten car. I think they had thirty. I'm gonna guess at thirty five cars they had there, but some of the best talent in in the South for super late model racing. And there's there's kind of three big series that run down in the South for super late models, um, and they drew people from all all the series, big name guys. And it was like the cream of the crop, and we just wanted to make the race, which would have been, you know, that's respectable. Yeah, it would be respectable. Um, I know uh, Bob Pollard was there, Kyle Bush was there, but he wasn't driving. That's when he had got hurt. Um, I think he had a broke leg. He was sitting on top of his trailer, and Christopher Bell was driving his car. Um, we went out there and sat on the pole. Really? And I was like ecstatic. Like I, I couldn't believe that we were fast enough to get the pole. I knew we were like we we're gonna. I figured we would make make the top ten. Sat in the pole. We didn't lead every lap, but we won the race. Wow. Uh, we were we led a lot of lap. We probably led half, maybe half the race, but we ended up winning the race, which was massive, right? Especially yeah. the the people that you beat there. Um, so we ran the, the 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 series that summer. We decided not to run past races anymore. We're gonna run the cars tour series, back to points racing, yeah. and uh, about killed ourselves doing it. Uh, it's a lot of maintenance on those cars, right? And when we were running prolate models. Um, he was fast, right? So he nerfed somebody out of the way, and the next week I had to put a nose and, and all the new ductwork in the radiator. And I got to a point where I'm like, dude, if if you keep knocking noses off, you gotta you're gonna have to put them on yourself because I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. You're the one that's doing it, not me, right? You're the one knocking them off. But yeah. anyways, so he learned pretty quick that we need to take care of the car, and uh, he he got really good. Um, we ran the Cars Tour Series that year and then went in the points, um, in 2015. Which is super impressive. Massive. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. So uh, it was a lot of fun. And at the time, though, um, which is c kind of funny, but it's it's pretty gratifying. You look back at it, it's two guys in a two-car garage with a 24-foot trailer racing Kyle Busch Motorsports. It has, like, three full-time employees, stacker trailer. Like, they had everything. They bought as, as many tires as they wanted to buy in practice every race, right? We buy two sets you know, on a weekend and won, won the points championship that year, which is, it was yeah. pretty impressive. And guys who are super late model racing for a living. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. But at the same time, you also look at the scope of things and it's like, I, 
I can't keep going at this level, right? With with the kind of money we were bringing in, and and we're not. I'm not a sp- sponsor hunter guy. I'm not very good at asking somebody for money. I can't stand it. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. It takes a special person to be able to do it and execute it, right? And uh, we tried to get some sponsors, and it uh, it just didn't work out, and I couldn't keep going. And to to work all day. Now my job. I work crazy hours. I, w- I usually work four to five hundred hours of overtime every single year, so, and then go home and rebuild your super late model because we're gonna go race on this weekend. So it's just it, it was hard, but the the money part of it really was was keeping us from getting better. Yeah. And I know that as talented as, as Cole was, I was holding him back, mm. both financially and um, I'm a fabricator. I'm not a crew chief, right? I don't wear I don't wear that hat. Yeah. So I did the best I could do, yeah. and I think the biggest regret I have, I think I wish I wish I would have used money on a crew chief, like hired somebody to run the deal okay. instead of me. But I was too egotistical and, and thought I want to do everything myself and save money, right? And I, it would it would have helped him out a ton. Yeah. I, I oh yeah, definitely would have helped us. Okay. But I could get the car close, and yeah. he would he would drive it however it was, right? right? But uh. Yeah, that is the only regret I have. But uh, we had fun. It was a blast. And, and eventually we, we dwindled down to running like a partial schedule. Yeah. And then we ran some big races, Snowball Derby, All-American 400. Um, and then, you know, we just realized that we can't keep up with these guys anymore. Yeah. It just got huge. And now it's actually really changed to where um, it's all – I shouldn't say all. There's a lot of, a lot of drivers are just – they just show up and drive. It's all it turned into a huge rental deal yeah. across the whole garage area for super late model racing. Yeah. Um, it's really changed quite a bit. So um, it's a, a, a two guys with a, a car in their little garage at home's really hard to go and beat those guys that do it every single week and the money they have behind them. Right. So so we kind of hung our hat up on that deal. Um, but both your boys now explain what they're doing. You must be super proud. Super proud, dad, man. I can't. Uh, I got. <laughs> Every everybody thinks their kids are their best, right? Of course, I think my kids are their best. I know, I know in my heart, they're. I I'm truly blessed. Like I couldn't I couldn't ask for a better couple boys. Um, we hung our hat up on the on the late model deal. We held on to the car for quite a while in case we were gonna race some more, or got a sponsor or something. Um, Cole is just graduating from high school, and uh, we met some people through racing. We went to a party. Um, like kind of a Christmas party thing and talked to David Gill and, and David's like, Hey, if you're done school, um, you can come to the, come work for us, mm. you know, we'll cause he was probably just starting his team at that point. Correct. Well, he, he had, he'd had some late models and stuff at his house, but he had, uh-huh. he had kind of grown his business to, a, he moved to Mooresville, um, moved up, got some trucks and stuff. Uh, so Cole went to work for him full time. Uh, it turned into a really good deal. It was great for him because he, he got to, you know, live out his dream working on cars and trucks and stuff. And uh, we had got, uh, while we were racing, talked to some Toyota people. And they sponsored us for five races to run a Toyota car, like under the Toyota umbrella. Okay. Um, so he drove for David in five races. The very first race, I'll get it back up a little bit again. Sorry, I, I told you I talked like crazy. No, no, it's good. It's great. Uh I lost both my parents uh, due to cancer. My dad was sick in the hospital at kind of around the same time when Toyota asked Cole to run five races. Uh, they were going to put him in a David Gillen car 
And this is a super. Uh, yes, it's a super late model. So at the time, the way their program worked is is uh, they had scouts looking for drivers um, to put in their Toyota family, and they would plug you in a bigger team um, to see you know your potential. Uh, so I went to Canada during his first race, which killed me because I never missed any of his races, right? So my dad and I um, watched his race on my computer in the hospital bed. And uh, Cole went to Tri-County in North Carolina in his first race for David Gillen, uh, sat in the pole, won the race, like murdered him. And uh, it was a, like a cool story. Maybe my dad were in the hospital screaming because we were so happy, right? And, and for the Toyota deal, it was big because it was a huge impact, right? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of eyeballs. A lot of eyeballs, yeah. Um, I, was, I still remember this story because I, I don't know if he'll tell the story the, the same way. But so when I got home, I talked to his crew chief. And his crew chief's like, man, I'm telling you, that kid's like unbelievable. We only use, he only used like, like normally you'd burn about 15 gallons of gas in a 150 lap super late model race. I think, I think Derek said it was only like, he only used like eight or 10 gallons. And, and he said, we're, we're running like half, we got to like halfway through the race. And he said, he's like running, I think he was, I don't even know where he was running second or third, about a half a lap behind the leader. And, uh, he said, Hey, are are you okay? And Cole's like, yeah. Cole quiet the way he is. He's just quiet. And Derek's like, uh, well, why don't you get going and, and see what you got? And Cole's like, well, I was, yeah, I was just saving my stuff. And he's like, all right, yeah, just go ahead and let's see what we got. And he like caught caught the leaders from half a track and then almost lapped the field like it was stupid how fast it was yeah it was a really cool story uh so he went on to race the 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 five races and it kind of david got bigger and the cars kind of degressed um by the time we ran our our last our fifth race it was kind of like the worst car in the stable still did good with it but it it uh you kind of went down the ladder on as far as the quality of the cars we were getting but anyways uh so where were we what was i supposed to talk about next just where he's working now and how, how that all came about go work for david full-time uh on his on his trucks and uh he wanted to get to the cup series too okay. and i said listen i can talk to some people at work when explain and your your wife also works for hendrick she does yeah she started there in the gift shop and then went to um the administration administrative building she was kind of like a receptionist there and then she went to um, move down to our central parts. We have a big parts department that houses all the parts and then distributes them to the different parts departments at Hendrick. She worked down there and then moved into um, an apparel role where the, um, her and her boss take care of all the drivers, uniforms, helmets, gloves, shoes, all the employees travel, um, bags, clothing, shop clothing. So they, so they, the two of them kind of dispute all that stuff through Hendrick. So she, she, her and I are working there. He wants to get in the cup series. So I said, listen, I could talk to some people. And he said, no, I don't, I don't want you to help me because I don't want people to think that, oh, your dad got you a job at Hendrick. I, I get it. Yeah. I said, okay, just left it at that. And about a week or two later, he said, hey, I got a job. And I'm really, where? And he said, uh, RPM, Richard Petty Motorsports. And he went there on his own and uh, got a job on his own. Did it, did it himself, and uh, he's underneath mechanic over there. Traveled, full, you know, traveled every weekend with them, and uh, he really liked it. And there was some turnover at Hendrick. It was getting close to the end of the year, and I said, "Hey, listen, we have some no openings. If if you want to come over, um, I was kind of trying to encourage him, only because 
bigger teams had more perks, sure. right? So we have our own jets. Um, some of our like our clothing was really cool. There's just a lot of perks. Our bonuses were better. There's just a lot of perks. Um, he really didn't want to leave um, because of the people mm. at RPM. And it was a hard decision for him to make, but I was really pushing him to come there. He might hate me for it, <laughs> but he eventually uh, went over to the 88, um, interviewed with Greg Ives, and moved from RPM to Hendrick and worked for the 88 car being an underneath mechanic. So that was his uh, entrance to, to Hendrick. And then he's grown since he's been there. He switched over to the nine car yeah. uh, where he's a mechanic there. And uh, they moved their interior guy. The inter an interior guy takes care of the driver's seat, um, the inside of the car, steering wheel, pedals, mirrors, um, all the padding around them, stuff like that. And then you also do the driver's uniform, helmets, shoes. You got to maintain it. So just because they have it, those guys don't have time to clean their helmets and shoes and, and fire suits and stuff, right? So their interior guy maintains all their all their apparel and stuff, safety equipment, and the inside of the car. And he's a mechanic, right? So kind of wears a lot of hats over on that team, but he's done really well. Um, yeah, so that's where he's at. And then uh, my younger son. So my kids are to this day. One's 24, Cole's 24, Ryan's 22, um, and Ryan got into painting RC cars. Okay. I didn't really see where this was going to go, yeah. but he was—he did a good job. It was kind of cool. It's like, yeah, that's a neat little hobby. Yeah. And uh, he was in school, wanted to be a machinist. So he started taking night classes, doing machining, um, tool and die classes. And I got him a job at um, a carburetor place, paint carburetors. So I said, when you're done school, this guy is going to hire you, so you have a place to go. So he was getting close to the end of all of his schooling stuff, and my wife had to take helmets to off-axis because that's where um, two of our drivers get their helmets painted. So Ryan went with her one day, and he's like, hey, this is this kind of cool. And I, I do a little bit of painting. Maybe I can do some part-time stuff here. So Greg offered him a part-time job there, sanding helmets at night during the day whenever he could get there. And uh, it evolved a little bit. He started just painting the base color on the helmet. And uh, Greg told him, if you if you think you can do this, if you want to be an artist here, paint a helmet. Okay. The whole thing, start to finish. We're not going to help you. And then we'll grade you, mm. basically. Cool. So he went to his brother <laughs> and said, hey, can I paint one of your helmets? Yeah. And Cole's, you know, on a limb it's like you know i don't know what this thing's gonna look like but yeah sure go ahead yeah. and he it's amazing he killed it very first helmet and uh right away they're like yeah you you got this. you got the job yeah and he's uh at that time he's at the entry level of painting helmets right they have four artists there um and they're one of their artists there is it, it's incredible um he he can do portraits which is the hardest thing to do right because sure. uh, you don't have a stencil you can't like print a picture and and just stick on a helmet clear over it right a portrait's like hand done with an airbrush yeah. and noel over there does that but uh, uh they have like i said four artists there's greg um that owns the company super the environment there is super cool okay. um they go in there and they don't have a like they don't have a, a work schedule like we don't work you know eight to four or whatever um you have a schedule, hey, we, this helmet has to be done Friday or Monday or whatever, right? Whatever you got to do to have it done, that's your schedule. Okay. You make your hours. Cool. So that's what he does. He goes in uh, 
some days he comes home at 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, some days he comes home at 5 o'clock at night. Yeah. But he loves it. It's cool. They, they just kind of go at it at their own pace, and he does a really good job. So, yeah, it's neat. So the whole family's in racing. The whole family's in racing. So to get back to, to your role and this past year, like, with the whole sport has changed dramatically with the new car. How has that changed? I guess if you could talk a little bit about that, like, there's there's a whole ton of rules, like, way less cars. How has, you know, every piece is totally different. How has your role changed uh, because of the new car? Okay, so uh, the new car... It took uh, uh, a car from you would English wheel pretty much every panel on our old car. You would hand make every every part except for the hood, roof, and trunk lid. The nose and tail were fiberglass. The whole like or sh- I should say Kevlar still are today, right? Everybody uses the same noses and tails basically, other than the, the manufacturer difference. Um, went from a handmade body because there was too much creativity and, and NASCAR couldn't keep a lid on it. Um, no matter what gauges, templates, measurements, they, they couldn't keep a lid on it. So they decided to come out with a common car um, where they had control of all the body panels um, and the chassis and the suspension. So it turned into a kit car, basically, and it came with a really thick book, How to Assemble This Car. And it's like Lego, like, come on, we're in racing. We don't need a book to tell us how to put a car together. But you really do because this car, the way it's put together – um, it's very, um, some of the parts are really compact saying that meaning you can't get to that part. If by the time you put the next part on, it. it's so hidden, you can't get back to it. So if you don't follow this book, you're going to have to go undo five things to put the one that you skipped over back in. So that part of it's, uh, made it pretty hard. The body, uh, is basically a flange fit, um, with, conicals like these locking blocks where you can't you can't manipulate any of the any each panel to each other you can't manipulate anything anymore they, they made the same effort. correct you can't heat the panels um as for all the, the bending and twisting and pulling we used to do is gone away um so the way the way hendrick is good-hearted man helps and let me tell you this mr hendrick helps People don't even know the people he helped. Like, he doesn't tell anybody. He helps so many people um, on the street, um, in the worst parts in Charlotte, um, like buying them a car. Just people that don't even know it's coming. He doesn't want any recognition. He just does it, instills that in the company, right? So, uh, he through the whole COVID thing that we had going on in the world, uh, we didn't lose any employees nobody even went without a paycheck he told everybody to go home however long this is going to last i will still pay you don't worry you'll still have a job here uh and he held that up like he's an incredible guy uh this new car came along and a lot of teams and employees were worried that we're that people are going to lose their jobs over this because it's not going to take the manpower to build a car that's a kit right so Mr. Hendricks uh, got some people at work that kind of search, right, for different avenues. And we picked up a military deal through Chevrolet to build off-road vehicles uh, for Chevrolet. So their mindset was like, if we can launch this, we won't have to get rid of any employees. We can just move people around. 
so it did it took off uh it's a it's a huge part of hendrick now i know they're going to build a big facility uh next to our race shops right now just to house all this uh so we haven't lost any employees i know um gibbs and i think uh penske stuart haas they lost like 150 to 200 people right over this new car just because that you don't you can put a car together you put the whole body on in a day compared to our we used to do it in four to five days a steel body um you can pretty much assemble a whole car in in five days like start to finish this thing can be race ready going on the track in five days uh so that part of it changed a lot um the creativity's almost out the window right because you can't you know you can't really have your free will to do whatever you want with body panels uh and then there's an underwing which the underwing changed the whole dynamic of all of our cars that we've like it took all of our wind tunnel notes um anything we ever thought worked is gone explain the underwing so the underwing is it totally seals off the underneath of the car where our old cars were partially open so there was the floor underneath the driver and some of the center section was was flat if you looked underneath the car it would just look flat right. kind of sealed this new car is like you can't even see in full belly pan full belly pan front yeah. to back um so so to exp you guys were putting those before this car the old cars you were putting them in the wind tunnel and you were playing around with o that, those openings correct yeah, where cool. how air bounced off all that stuff yep angles um where you could so air air always takes the easiest path but when it gets to a confined area it speeds up and accelerates um and if you can figure out where to use the air to your advantage, what angle it wants to visit underneath the car, um, there's a jet where there's a sweet spot. It needs to be to go the fastest way underneath your car to get out. The air doesn't want to stay under your car. It wants to go in the front, out the back as fast as it can. But but you want to use the power that it has to your advantage. Um, and it was hard to do that with the old car because it wasn't sealed. So you had to like use the panels that were underneath there to your advantage to make it work uh this new car is 100 percent sealed underneath they did their homework and they figured out how to make sig a significant amount of downforce under the car yeah. so we didn't have to work on the outside of the car so now 80 percent of our downforce comes from under our car now and only 20 percent on the outside which which now we're like okay i guess we don't need to work on the outside and that's exactly what nascar wanted they didn't want us to work on the outside of the car and and bend the rules and stuff they wanted to have control and they did it i mean they did a really good job of it so today basically all my time spent in the underwing um now what are what are you guys allowed to do or is that totally not allowed to touch it and how did how did all that kind of shake out this year so nascar's always had tolerances um so they came up with a tolerance uh for the underwing which is 300,000th window which is a little bit under three-eighths of an inch um so they have a zero and you can be 150 thousandths on either side of that zero um which is like an eighth of an inch basically so there's it's all adjustable and we can move uh there's four big panels underneath the car that you that you can move um up or down not really side to side so our aero department all they do now is basically try different um, configurations. Yeah. yeah. Okay. On the underwing, so we're up to like 130 options, and every time you change one single adjustment, it's an option, right? right? Because if for your notebook, you have to have proper, correct notes. Because as soon as you have something that's not not exact, then it's then it's not real. Yeah. So we we're up to like 130 options, and 
the whole, like I said, all, all those panels underneath the car are adjustable. And we have this small box that we can work in, which I think small because we used to have free will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I spend most of my week. Uh, the aero department will tell us what track we're going to. This is the best configuration. And then you have to set it. And we have roamer arms and scanners and all kinds of stuff to check it. So, so this year, and I, you know, I'm not the guy. I, I don't follow it that that closely. But there was a uh, a part shortage, and you guys were at a certain point were allowed to fix those parts that were supposed to not be touched. And then the rule went back. Now you're not allowed to touch them again. How did that all shake out this year? Yeah. So the sun. So. There's only a handful of parts that teams can actually still make, and then there's uh, manufacturers that that control. Like they'll build Five Star does all of our body panels. Um, there's another company that does our underwings, um, et cetera. It goes on. Uh, but the they they the manufacturers couldn't keep up with the the parts that the teams needed to build multiple cars at the time. Um, NASCAR was gonna give each team seven cars per car number. Um, so like the 24 car would get seven cars. So right away, even though we only have one chassis, we're going to order parts for seven cars, yeah. right? Every team's going to do that. The manufacturers didn't realize that that was going to happen. They thought they were going to build a set of panels for each team. And then once they get the next car, they build another set of panels. So it kind of blindsided them when all the teams needed all these parts, um, pretty quick. Uh, and then we ended up getting chassis, so we started building cars faster. And obviously, the manufacturers were at a deficit. They still couldn't keep up to the the, the parts that we needed. The other thing was um, you're not allowed to touch panels. You can't paint panels either. You can only wrap cars now so that NASCAR can pull the wrap off and make sure you didn't manipulate any any part of the car. When you race, because it's 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 basically carbon fiber and Kevlar with a gel coat, if you touched anybody, it would crack the gel coat. So do you crack the gel coat in the shop to make a lip? Because I just raced this panel last week. It's an advantage. Well, then they're like, oh, you, well, you can't do that. Well, we don't have any body panels. Yeah. Like they can't keep up. Yeah. So are we allowed to race this body panel or not? Well, you need to put a new one on. We don't have them. Um, another thing was we were getting body panels and other parts of the car that had flaws in them. And... We, we didn't want to race that panel, but if you sent it back, you would go to that, that part would go back to get fixed, but you'd be at the bottom of the list of all the people waiting on panels. So then you're out of panel for how many months? You don't know. So NASCAR realized they had a big problem. Um, so what they did is they said, you can, we're going to allow you to fix the body panels just to help your inventory for seven races. We want documents, so we need before and after pictures. We want to see what it looks like before the damage or when it when it was damaged, and then after you repaired it, how it looks, and then after the race, when we pull your wrap off, it better match the picture. Mm. So that's the way they were going to do it. Um, seven races, and it turned into over half the season, you know, and then the manufacturer started getting inventory and dispersed it. Of course, the way the chassis and parts go, they can't they can't let a part go until they have like thirty six or thirty eight of that part chassis body panel doesn't matter because it's only fair if each team gets it at the same time sure. otherwise people are going to complain that some big team is going to get parts that they're not being able to get and so uh so they would they would hang on to those parts so they had enough and they'd let it go so that was another another problem we fought um what happened was when they were when they were letting us fix our own panels 
some teams took it to another level. And uh, you can make something like a smoke and mirror. You can make it look like it was in the picture, but it's really not what it's supposed to be. And some teams got in trouble. They got caught and got fined. Right. Um, our philosophy now is like the the fine is so massive that NASCAR made it where it's it the the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Like it's not worth getting in that much trouble and losing that many points and money over what what you're going to gain, especially when all the downforce is under the car now. So it really tied our hands. So we don't really we don't mess with the body. We don't even push the envelope on the body because all of it's under the car. So we just try to maximize everything under the car now. Right. Huh. So you think the new car has done what, you know, its job, what NASCAR wanted out of it? It gave them total control. Yes. They got what they wanted. They A lot of the cheating is gone. You know, you, you, you hear in the media that some people got caught. And that's just a fraction of what we used to do. Like, so many times we would... They would NASCAR usually takes a car post race and they'll take it back to their facility and take it apart and look at it. I can't even tell you how many times that we were told, "Don't bring it back." They should have got fined. Like the only way you're gonna you're gonna stop people from doing it is to make an impact on them. And they, and so many times they'd be like, "Okay, I, we know what you're doing. Don't do it again." You know, and we go back to shop. Okay, we're doing it to every car. Well, it's a free for all then. Yeah. So it was it was just out of control. So they have control now. So that part of it they got. The f- they didn't really see the parts thing coming. That hurt That hurt it a lot. Um, the chassis is way too stiff. Obviously, you know, we got some drivers hurt, which we don't want. That was, you know, a horrible thing to see. So they, they went back to work, and they, they made the car where it's going to absorb some energy next year. But I think on the flip side, it might be we, – we don't know this yet because we haven't raced. But it might be – like a double-edged sword. Now I think we're going to start damaging more parts underneath the body because the, the clips are going to move more, which is going to you know get into more parts. So we're going to see. I'm not sure how it's all going to pan out yet. We won't know until we start racing. But it's like when you know if you got a you got a leak in a hole, you put a bandaid on it, and another hole pops up. Yeah. So we're trying to chase all these all these holes. But right, right. Do you uh, you're still a young guy, but do you ever do you have a retirement plan ever? Are you gonna are you one of those guys who's going to work till they die? <laughs> I would I, I wish I could think that I could retire but I don't know if I ever could. I'm on the go all the time and I have a shop at my house. Uh so my my oldest son Cole since since he can't race on weekends on asphalt stuff that we were racing um because he's out of town, he decided to buy a dirt car that he can race on Wednesday nights close to our house. Okay. So we have that in our shop. Uh he just he sold his he sold one and built a new one. And then I got a 1970 C10 I'm building for my uh, younger son, but uh, I I don't I'm not really good at finishing projects. Like I'll 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 be two thirds way done. I'll have an idea, yeah. and I'll go over here and I'll start building something else. Or some guy will call me. He needs a late model body put on. I'll be like, yeah, bring it over. I'll put a body on. You know. So I don't I don't never stop. Like I don't sit. I'm not a very good sitter. I don't stand around. I don't like you know not doing anything or having. It's gonna be hard for me to retire. Yeah, finishing projects is anticlimactic. You know, it's it's the it's the new idea that's the exciting part, right? The new project is the exciting part. Yeah, I just my brain never stops. Like I just I gotta I gotta hone in on on what I'm working on and 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 then have an idea. But my problem is I I have ideas all the time, and it's like, man, I want to pursue something, so I I start another project. But I'll I'll go back and finish them. 
I don't really have anything that I, other than that truck, I haven't finished. But uh, yeah, I just I already got ideas for my next project. Um, what kind of advice? Because there's there's so many guys up here who who are so far removed from you know Mooresville and, and Charlotte and want to make that jump, but you know it seems like you may as well be sailing across the ocean what advice do you have for guys all over the world who who want to make that jump and and live the life that you're living yeah so uh like, like i said i i was a small a, a kid from a small town right I had a dream that i didn't think i could ever make happen and dreams are achievable always people achieve dreams every day um if if you want something bad enough you'll you have to go get it Racing in general, um, if if you want to get into, you know, a a high level uh, series or or team, you got to start at the bottom. Um, I don't I don't believe in just landing on a on a big team and you hit you hit your hit the ground running. Those people don't last normally. Um, I like to learn the hard way. You learn. I if I'm gonna if I'm gonna have a race car, I want to know every single nut and bolt in that thing. I want to know what makes it tick. Um, so I, I like, I would say go to your short track, small, small team, little family, start helping those guys and learn, you know, what makes those things work and then uh, move up. Right. Um, the other thing is like talk less, listen more because there's, there's so much advice out there. And as soon as, as soon as I hear somebody's ego, I'm already done with you. I'm not going to give you advice, right? Because you already know everything. Uh, I like I like to learn a lot, but uh, most of your peers have already been there and done that, and they'll and they'll teach you a lot. All you have to do is listen. And a lot of times, people get ahead of it and 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 miss out on a lot of good opportunities. So, and just because there's a border between Canada and the United States, um, that's probably the hardest thing to get across mm. the right way, right? Like legally. But it's the hardest thing. So, it, if you can over, if you can find your way through there, I mean, there's, it's it's right there. You yeah. can you can have it. Just uh, it's tough. But yeah, anybody can do it. If I did it, I promise you, anybody can do it. Cool. Yeah. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me, man. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, this was it was good. We'll do it again. Uh, we'll do it again when we can talk about uh, maybe ten years from now. We can talk about uh, the new car. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or I can open my book and tell you all the cheating stuff we did. (laughs) Whenever that statute of limitations runs out, come on back. (laughs) Thanks. You guys enjoyed this. Give me a rating and share it with some friends.